Good morning, West Village family. How's it going? Chris here, uh, one of the leaders uh, of the church. Uh, if you are new joining us online, maybe this is your first time uh, viewing us or watching our Sunday morning gathering, I want to extend a big special welcome to you. Um, one of the things we love about our church family is that we are indeed a church family. Uh, since we've gone virtual, it kind of doesn't feel like a church family. We're kind of scattered from house to house, living room to living room, phone to phone. Uh, but regardless of that, we still want the church to feel like a family. So if you've been watching us online, if you've just been checking us out, uh, our heart is that you would move from maybe the outside uh, to the inside, from just an observer to part of the family, or as best we can uh, help you feel like part of the family in this season that we're in as a church, uh, to help you be a part of that. And so we have a lot of virtual ways uh, that you can get involved. We have online connect groups, and uh, we have all kinds of things that you can participate in in this obscure, weird season we're in. And so here's what I would like for you to do. If you're new, if you're just checking us out, if you want more information about our church, uh, then I would just ask you to simply text your name to the number that's on the screen uh, and somebody on our staff team will follow up and uh, connect with you. The other thing you could do if you wanted to is just comment in whatever platform you're watching below and somebody will follow up uh, with you. Uh, one of the things that we are passionate about at West Village is the Bible. We love to teach through books of the Bible. And for quite some time, we've been in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew. Well, we're going to hit pause on that, and we are going to go into a new series for a short time. Uh, the elders got together. We talked about uh, what are some of the needs, the unique needs at this moment in this season in the life of our church. And we felt like we needed a specific series for a specific time uh, to speak into these specific and unique circumstances. And so what we're going to do is hit pause on Matthew, as I already said, and we're going to start to teach and preach through the book of Esther. Uh, the book of Esther is a book in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, grab it, or you can download the Bible app on your phone. And the book of Esther is like, if you go to the middle of your Bible, I'm cheating here, I got a little ribbon, but if you go to the middle of your Bible, go to the book of Psalms, next book to the left of that is uh, the book of Job, and then before that is the book of Esther. Head over there. And uh, we are going to start working our way through that. Before we jump into this text, though, uh, I want to pray. I want to just take some time, pause, take a breath, uh, and acknowledge that this is, although a weird moment, this is still a spiritual moment. This is a moment where we need the Spirit of God to show up to take his word and make it come alive for us. So why don't we stop and pray together? Lord Jesus, uh, we ask as we open up your word, as we come before the words that you wrote for us for this particular season in the life of our church, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, uh, that by your grace, uh, your spirit would open our eyes, would open our ears, would open our hearts, and would open our minds. Uh, we believe, Lord, in this season you have something very special and very unique for us, and so uh, we want to listen, we want to hear from you, and we invite you to come, we invite you to speak. We invite you to have your way both in our lives personally, but also in the life of our church. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's children said, amen, amen. So before we jump into the book of Esther, I want to just kind of set this up by giving us a little bit of background on the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is one of the most unique books in the entire Bible. Uh, perhaps the most distinguishing characteristic of the book of Esther is that nowhere in the book does it mention God at all. Uh, it's the only book in the Bible that has no mention of God. So why then would we want to teach and preach through a book that doesn't 
reference God? Well, for a couple of reasons. Obviously, it's in the Bible, and so we believe that uh, the entire Bible has been breathed by the Spirit of God and is useful and good for edifying us and for uh, revealing to us who Jesus is. So we believe that God has placed this book uh, in the Bible for us to profit us, to benefit us, to grow us. Uh, But even more than that, we think specifically this book, both pastorally and prophetically, speaks into this particular moment that we find ourselves in. See, one of the sort of broad sweeping ways you could describe the book of Esther, the plot line of the book of Esther, is that there's a set of dire circumstances that happen in the life and times of the people of God, and yet God seems absent. He's not there. And yet through his providential hand, through his working in and through the circumstances that are happening, that are happening rather in the life and times of his people, specifically through some people who are frankly rather ordinary and in some cases uh, not even that good at following Jesus, he moves, he works, and he brings about his redemptive purposes so in other words it's almost identical to the moment that we find ourselves in right now so again if you have your bible open it up to the book of esther and we are literally just going to go verse by verse through this book so starting in chapter 1 verse 1 here is what the author of esther records this is what happened during the time of exerces Now, let's just stop there for a second, because one of the things that is really important for us to understand is the context that is happening in the life and times of the people of God, the historical context, so that we can best understand what is is taking place in this moment and how God is working in their lives. So this phrase that the author uses, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, uh, is a common phrase that is used in ancient literature. It's the author's way of locating this story so that those who are reading it can understand uh, what's taking place. Now notice what the author says. He says it happens during, this story happened during the time of Xerxes. Uh, So what's, what's taking place uh, what's the historical landscape? What's the context that, uh, that the people of God find themselves in? Well, prior to this, roughly uh, 150 years, 250 years rather, before this, in about 580 BC, the Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, came into both Jerusalem and Judah, which was the capital cities for the people of God, and they ransacked and, and attacked and destroyed those cities. They, they destroyed the temple, and they took the people of God into captivity. And then roughly 150 years later, about 430 BC, the the Persian Empire, led by a man named Cyrus II, he then conquered the Babylonians. And as a result, he held the people of Israel in captivity. Now, Cyrus II was a little bit nicer than King Nebuchadnezzar because what he did with the people of God is he gave them the opportunity to go back to their homeland. Uh, using his own resources, using the Persian Empire's resources, he said to the, the nation of Israel, to the people of God, you can go back to your capital city, you can go back to Jerusalem, you can go back and you can rebuild the temple. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament prophets Ezra and Nehemiah, you read about those people, the people that chose to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, but there was a, a group of people amongst the people of God who chose to stay in Persia. Uh, they decided that it would be better for them to stay And they chose not to go back to Jerusalem. That's what the book of Esther is about. It's about the people that chose to stay 
in the nation of Persia to not go back to Jerusalem. And right off the bat, the context of the book of Esther poses for us a massive theological question, one that we really have to wrestle with. The question is this, is God only at work in Jerusalem? Is God only present in the temple? Is God only at work when the temple is built, when the nation is restored, when the people of God are walking in full obedience and in full, uh, full confidence of the grace of God in their lives? And the answer the book of Esther gives us is that no, that God is at work all the time. He works in all kinds of ways. He works, he works in ways that you do not expect. In fact, even when it seems, and this is what we're going to see in the book of Esther, even when it seems like God is not working, when he is completely absent, he is still indeed working. You see, the book of Esther isn't a story of people who were desperately trying to be faithful to God. And their faithfulness to God is what delivered them from exile into great prosperity. This is actually a story about people who, as we will see, are not very impressive at all. Uh, they chose to stay in Persia because it was comfortable. And again, what we will see is that circumstances for them get really, really bad. And yet the name of God is not mentioned. God is nowhere to be seen. And although we can't see God in the story, he's providentially at work. Providentially, he's working behind the scenes. He's moving to bring about his redemptive purposes and to save his people. I, I would argue that for us as a church, this is very timely. Uh, in, the, in the moment that we find ourselves in, in this COVID moment in history, certainly we're not under persecution, certainly... Uh, we're, not going, we're not under physical harm or hardship per se. But for many of us personally, there's this sense in which God seems absent. He seems far. Certainly for us corporately as a church, uh, it seems like there's some things that are happening that are not the way they should be. In the same way that the nation of Israel, uh, sorry, rather the, the people in the book of Esther and the people in Persia had no temple. We have no place to gather uh, in the same way that they're going to come under hardship. We experience hardship, personal hardship, physical hardship, financial hardship. And the question is, is God still working? Is he at work in the midst of what's happening right now in this moment? And the answer for the book of Esther is yes. Yes, indeed, he is. So, so the context is super important for us to understand because it helps us, it helps us locate what is going on in the life and times of the people. So the story goes on. So verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. And then it, the author writes this, the Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Now, let's stop here and ask a question. Who is Xerxes? Well, at the time that this was written, he is ruling over the Persian Empire, and he's a significant character in the story. In fact, his, his character casts a massive shadow over this entire story. 
uh, and really over this entire historical moment, Xerxes plays a significant role. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie 300, I can't recommend it because if I did, I would have to fire myself. But if you've ever seen that movie, he's a character in that movie. He's also a character in the uh, video game Assassin's Creed. Xerxes shows up in that game. Uh, and Xerxes inherited the throne to the, to, the per, from the per, to the Persian Empire from his father, Darius, when he was in his mid-30s. And at this point uh, in the story, Xerxes is likely between 35 and 36 years old. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Because the, the author of the book of Esther is trying to give us a picture of something. And it's going to get very, very explicit. At this point, it's just, it's kind of casual, but it's going to get more and more explicit. He, he's trying to paint a picture for us of the, the largest, the, the bigness of this, of this king, of this emperor. And I mean, even the name, just say the name with me for, for a second. Xerxes. It's a, it's a strong name. Xerxes. Right? It's a, it's a masculine name. It's not a girly name like Ashley or Lindsay or... Chris, right? Chris, that's a girly, that's a girly name. It's a, it's a strong name. You say it and, and you can't really, you can't whisper. You can say Xerxes. Yeah, you, ha- you have to almost yell it, Xerxes. Uh, as I've been preparing for uh, the sermon this week, I, I, I just said, man, wouldn't it be cool? We're going to probably end up with a whole bunch of COVID babies out of all this, right? Not a whole lot to do when you're in self-isolation. Wouldn't it be cool if we got a, an Xerxes COVID baby at West Village out of this? I'm praying that one of you will name your baby Xerxes. But, but here's what we see. That Xerxes is a powerful man. He's a wealthy man. It cannot be overstated. Look at what the author writes about him. He says that the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces. Again, the author is just trying to show us the vastness of the kingdom of Persia. Uh, The the number 127 is significant. Uh, Some commentators have argued that uh, it wasn't just an arbitrary number, but they picked this number very specifically, 127. 12 times 10 plus 7. 12, which represented the the 12 tribes of Israel. 10, which is uh, the number of completeness. And 7, which is the number of perfection. That in a sense, what they are trying to communicate to us, what the author is trying to communicate to us is that Xerxes ruled over the entire world. And then he talks, the author does, about the vastness of the kingdom of Persia. He says, stretching from India to Cush. So uh, the modern day equivalent of this would be like a kingdom that was from Pakistan to what we now know as Turkey. And it would, the kingdom of Persia in this time even stretched all the way to northern Africa. So this was a kingdom that spanned from multiple nations, multiple people groups, multiple languages, multiple tribes, multiple regions, and it was all under Xerxes' authority. Uh, What's my point? My point is that this man, Xerxes, is the most powerful man in the known world at this time. In fact, that's what the Persian Empire was called, the world. There is no modern day equivalent to Xerxes, not one. Uh, It would be like taking Bill Gates plus Kanye West plus Hugh Hefner plus Donald Trump, adding a whole bunch of zeros, and it still would not get to the, the level of significance that this man Xerxes had. And look at what it says in verse two. It says, at this time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel, in the citadel of Susa. 
again, the author trying to give us a picture of the grandeur of Xerxes. Look at the city that he references. The city's called Susa. Uh, Susa is in modern-day Iran. But most importantly, what we know about Susa is that it's the capital of the Persian Empire. So here's what we have. We have the most important city in the most important empire. So functionally, what, what the author is trying to show us is that this is the most important city in the entire world, and this, this is like the center of the universe, and this is where Xerxes lives. And then look at what it says about where he lives in Susa. He lives in the citadel. The word citadel literally means fortress or palace. Uh, we know from history that Xerxes had two palaces, uh, one for the summer, one for the winter. Uh, so you know you're doing okay. You know you're in a pretty good position. You have, you have a lot going on when you have a backup palace. You have two palaces, one for the summer, one for the winter. But what is significant about the palace is that the palace in the city of Susa would have been placed up on the Acropolis. The Acropolis is literally known as the high place. And so we get this picture of uh, Xerxes that he's in the most important preeminent city in what is at this point uh, the known world. And he's up on the high place looking down upon all the people and all the people are looking up at Xerxes. You can kind of see where this is going. Xerxes is like a functional god. And then notice what the author says about where he was seated. He was seated on his royal throne. For Xerxes, the throne represented everything that he valued. His throne was enormous. It was glorious. It was made out of gold. Xerxes loved his throne. He loved it. Uh, when his army would go to battle, he would request that his soldiers would carry him on his throne out to the battlefield and they would place him again high up high and exalted above the battle and he'd look out over the battlefield and watch as his army destroyed other nations ransacked them his throne was so important to him that if you or I were to touch his throne he had issued an edict that we would be put to death in fact his throne when it was in the citadel in the city of Susa high and exalted it was placed on top of a carpet and if you or I were to step even onto the carpet on which his throne sat, again, we would be put to death. If you were to walk past Xerxes while he was seated on his throne, it was required that you would bow down, humble yourself, not even look at him, and pay homage to him, lest you be killed. I want you to see the picture that is being painted for us here by the author. Here's Xerxes, the most powerful man in the entire world, in the most important city in the world, in the largest palace in the world. He's high and exalted. He's seated on a throne. He's ruling and he's reigning. Here's what the author wants us to see, that King Xerxes is nothing short of a living God. He wants us to have this image in our mind of, of the bigness of Xerxes in this moment. He had rule and reign over the people. He towered over them. His rule in every way defined reality for the empire. And even at this point for the people of God. The ones who remained in the Persian empire were defined by his rule and reign. So here's an interesting question. What does Xerxes do with the power 
and the authority that he has? How, how does he yield it? Uh, does he love the poor? Does he, does he take care of the marginalized? Does he look out for the outsider or does he do something different? Well, let's continue on. Here's what we see picking up in verse three. And says this, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. Let's stop there. Xerxes is about to throw a party. Now, the theme of banquet is one that is very significant in the story of Esther. There are several banquets within the story of Esther. In fact, in the verses we're going to read this morning, there's three banquets. Uh, and every time there's a banquet scene, what the author is trying to do is cause us to pause and pay attention to what's going on because something significant is happening. So, so what uh, Xerxes is about to do is significant. He's about to throw a banquet. Something significant is about to happen. But let's pay attention here because who does Xerxes throw the banquet for? Look at what it says. It says he throws this banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. So, so Xerxes throws a party. Is it for the poor? Is it for the marginalized? No, he throws it for, for all the dignitaries, for all the politicians, for all the leaders from across the Persian Empire. Why? Why does he do this? Well, because uh, in, in these times, and probably not that dissimilar to the way things work now, when a leader wanted to exert control over a nation, and specifically in a nation like Persia that was so widespread, so many nations, so many people, so many leaders, so many, so many different areas to have dominion and rule and reign, what Xerxes would do is he would throw a party, he would invite all these leaders, all these politicians, all these dignitaries to come to his palace and he would throw the best party. He would fill them full of food, fill them full of drink, give them all kinds of women and this was his way of having control over them. If he could keep them fat and happy, then they would continue to want to follow his edicts and his rule and his reign. So, so let's take a look at the party. Here's what we see in verse 4. It goes on to describe the party. It was a good one. I'm just going to warn you, okay? This is, this is a good party. For a full 180 days, he displays the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. So 180 days. Put that, think about that for a second. That's a six-month party. This, this, is, this isn't like a backyard barbecue. This isn't, you know, bring a side to share. This is a big deal. So, so 108 days, six months, and he, he just puts on display the vastness of all his wealth, the vastness of the wealth of the kingdom. Uh, so this is like Game of Thrones meets hip hop video times spring break equals this party. I mean, there is all kinds of food. There is all kinds of drink. There is all kinds of women. In fact, what we do know about this banquet specifically is that it was men only. And anytime you get a bunch of dudes and a bunch of alcohol and a bunch of meat in a room, bad things are going to happen. And so we know for, for a fact what Xerxes was trying to do was he was trying to exert control over these leaders so he could maintain control over his empire goes on though verse 5 he throws another party look at this verse 5 when these days were over so that 180 days is over that banquet is over the king gave another banquet notice another banquet lasting this time only seven days so smaller party in this enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa so so 
uh, Xerxes throws a big party. All the politicians, dignitaries, they come six months, you know, just lampshades on the head going crazy. Then he throws another party, seven days, and he invites everybody in the kingdom greatest to least. They estimate there were about 15,000 people at the first party. This party had roughly, commentators think, about 50,000 people. And most likely, again, this was a way to control the people. He opens the palace. He invites them in. He, you know, shakes some hands, kisses some babies. People think Xerxes is great. They're willing to follow him. He, he has motive here. He's not just being a nice guy. And he goes on to describe uh, the vastness of the wealth of the kingdom, the garden had hanging uh, had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material uh, to silver rings on marble pillars. So I mean, we just again, p- purple was uh, was a color of royalty. It was it was something that only those who had extreme wealth had access to. So we just see the vastness of the kingdom. There were couches of gold. That doesn't sound comfortable, but it seems kind of nice to have couches of gold. Couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement. I mean, it would suck if you were like King Xerxes and your wife wasn't happy with you. You had to go sleep on the gold couch. It's like, I I would want pillows, but whatever. Okay. So he's got gold and silver couches. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant. I'm going to guess that this wasn't wine that came out uh, in a box. And then uh, verse eight, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So, so here's what we see. Xerxes, high and exalted, in the city of Susa, in the citadel, seated on the throne. Functionally, in this moment, he's a god. He's throwing a party. He's inviting all these people. He's putting on display the vastness of the wealth of the kingdom. But I want you to notice something that the writer says. Go back up to verse 4 with me. Look at what he says. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom. And then look at this. And the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Who was all this for? Why is Xerxes throwing this party? It was about him. It was about him. It was about him maintaining political control. It was about him looking good. It was about him being popular. But more than that, what the author of Esther wants us to see, what the author of Esther is trying to do is paint a picture for us of a king, a king who wants to be a god, a king who thinks that he is a god. This is Xerxes. Functionally, in this moment, Xerxes, in his own mind, would have believed that he was God. Now, let's take a step back for a second. Remember the context. Remember what is happening in the life and times, in the history of God's people. Here we have in the nation of Persia, Persia, underneath the rule and reign of Xerxes, a group of God's people who have made a conscious decision not to return to Jerusalem, but instead to remain here underneath Xerxes' rule and reign. Imagine what this would have been like for this particular group of people as they sat under the rule and reign of Xerxes. Now, 
Ask yourself this. Did these people love the God of the Bible? Perhaps, we don't know. But what we do know is that for these people, there was something about staying in the nation of Persia. There was something about the rule and reign of Xerxes that drew them to stay in his empire. They longed, they wanted to stay in the comfort of the empire. There was something about the opulence, the the grandeur of the empire that caused this particular group of God's people to not go back to Jerusalem, to not rebuild the temple, to not roll up their sleeves and do some hard work to restore what God was trying to build, but rather to stay here under Xerxes' rule and reign. And for them, it might have sounded really good on paper to stay there. I mean, think about it. They, they would have been included in this seven-day party. Uh, they, would have been, uh, they would have been privy to the display of wealth that Xerxes was putting out for everyone. They would have feasted from the buffet, if you will. But yet, if you think about it for just a second... There's an emptiness to this. Xerxes will come and go. Another leader will take his place. They will then be subject to that leader. And then he will come and go. And another one will take his place. And they will be subject to that leader. And the leaders come and go. And and here are the people of God serving leader after leader, emperor after emperor. And you have to wonder, is this all that there is? Now, here's what I I want you to see, and here's what I think the author of the book of Esther is trying to get us to see, is that for God's people, God had been so faithful to them throughout their history, that he had constantly rescued them, redeemed them, and saved them. And in this moment, these people made a conscious decision to not go back and serve God, but rather to stay here. And what ended up happening to the people of God is that they eventually, they just assimilated into the empire. They assimilated into the culture. And the story of the empire functionally became their story. Uh, Their reality was no longer defined by the story of God. It was no longer defined by the reality of God's grace, God's redeeming work, God's saving effort that had had been a part of their long history, but now instead they were a part of the empire. And in this moment, in chapter one of the book of Esther, it it seemed to be working for them. They they had everything they wanted and they they had everything that they could possibly need. But but spoiler alert for us here, in a a few chapters, here's what's going to happen. Xerxes on a whim, by, makes one edict. And what happens? Everything that they have grown to know and love about the empire is taken away from them. In one moment, Xerxes has it so that the people of God go from being fat and happy and comfortable in the empire, loving, feasting from the buffet of the empire, to an edict that says that they are to be slaughtered. 
everything that they put their hope in, everything that they put their trust in, everything that caused them to want to stay in the empire is taken from them in that one moment. And all of a sudden, the empire doesn't look so great anymore. All of a sudden, being here in Persia and not being in Jerusalem with God's people doesn't look so great. And I think for us, there's, there's something here. I think the, the cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now speaks to this story. Uh, for, for many of us, we, we, have, we have loved the empire. And, and I want to be clear and, and I want to make sure everyone understands what I'm not talking about right now. What I'm not talking about is our, our government. What I'm not talking about is those who have political or legal authority over us, but what I'm talking about is the culture that we live in. The church is immersed in a particular culture in the same way that the people of God were immersed in a particular empire. And just as the people of God forgot that that they were God's chosen people, rescued and redeemed, I think it's very easy for us as the people of God in this culture that we have been so immersed in to forget that we too are God's people. In fact, Peter, in, in the book of First Peter, the letter that he writes to the church, he, he defines us as exiles. He calls us, he names us exiles. He says that this world is not our home. Yet for many of us, we have grown to know and love this culture in such a way that we have forgotten that we belong to Jesus. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think there's many of us who, who love our culture and love Jesus. We, we love the culture that God's placed us in and we love Jesus. Uh, but, I, but I think there's this reality where we have been assimilating and we have been marinating in the culture for so long that instead of us changing the culture, the culture started to change us. That instead of us coming in and being lights, cities on a hill, what's ended up happening is slowly over time, the dominant story that has defined our lives has not been the story of God, but the story of our culture. And what we've experienced in the last number of days, weeks, as, as this COVID reality has hit, as the economy has started to tank, as people have started to uh, you know, lose jobs and wonder about the future, here's what's happened. The thing that we perhaps have placed our hope and trust in has been taken away from us. Uh, the thing that we have, have rested on has been taken away from us. And, and I think what, what Esther is trying to say to us is that there's a better story. Uh, I think for many of us, we have gone from being fat and happy to scared and anxious to fearful to living for self-preservation and isolation. The empire was great until the empire could no longer give us what we wanted. And so how did we get to where we are? How did we get to this place? If, if you're this morning feeling, you're sitting in your living room and you're feeling like the future is uncertain, that your life is riddled with fear and anxiety, how did you get here? How did we get here? 
It's because we forgot who we belong to. Uh, we, we forgot that we don't belong to the empire, but we belong to Jesus. We belong to a different kingdom with a different king. And church, hear me on this. Our king is still ruling and he's still reigning. Amen. Although just like in the book of Esther, there's no mention of God. And in this moment, we might feel like God is not, not here. Like, God, where are you? We know that he is indeed ruling and reigning. And I'll, again, I want to be abundantly clear. I, I, want, I, don't want you to, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey the government. I'm not saying that we shouldn't practice social distancing. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take every single precaution uh, imaginable to help not spread the virus. That's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what you place your hope in. I'm, finding, I'm talking about what you find contentment in. And what I'm trying to drive home, and I don't feel like I'm doing a particularly good job right now at communicating this, but here's what I want you to know, that you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. In this moment where it feels, it feels like everything is so uncertain. It feels like everything that we have been building and everything that we know has been or might be taken away from us, there is one thing that we can be sure of, and that is Jesus has us. He has us. Is this hard? Absolutely. Is it scary? Yeah, it's scary. Is it uncertain? It's absolutely uncertain. But should it crush us, church? The answer is no. No, because we belong to Jesus. We belong to him. He has you in his hand. And I have good news for us, West Village. Very, very good news for us. Because above there is another king. Uh, above the story of this moment that we find ourselves, there is indeed a better story. You see, the book of Esther is just one story in God's redemptive story. And the book of Esther is actually moving towards pointing towards a greater king, a greater reality. Above Xerxes, there's another throne and seated on it, there is another king and his name is Jesus. Jesus is our king. And unlike King Xerxes, Jesus gets up off his throne and comes and serves. Our king doesn't ask us to come and serve him, but Jesus gets up and he lays down his life for us. Friends, Xerxes thought he was Jesus, but Xerxes isn't Jesus. Xerxes isn't Jesus. Friends, look at me. The moment we find ourselves in right now, it is serious. For many of us, it is hard, but it is not the most dominant story that defines our life the most dominant story that defines our life is the reality of the grace of God as put on display for us in Jesus. What Jesus offers us is better than anything the empire, our culture could ever offer us. A friend Xerxes thought he was Jesus, but he isn't. There's a better king. There's a better king. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus 
is the son of God. Xerxes never experienced poverty nor humility, but Jesus chose them both to identify with us. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but but Jesus said of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Xerxes killed his enemies, but Jesus laid his life down for his enemies and he called them his friends. Xerxes ruled over people from many nations. But Jesus' kingdom is a family from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Xerxes sat on his throne in Susa. But Jesus, friends, listen to me. Jesus is seated on the throne that is above all other thrones and is seated high and exalted. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is ruling and he is reigning. And here is the question for us, friends. Here's the question that we must answer. I know these are scary times. I know these are uncertain times. But here's the question we must answer. Is Jesus on his throne? Is Jesus on his throne? The answer is yes. Jesus, our resurrected Lord, Savior, Christ, and King, He's seated on the throne. Church, we have nothing, nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. I'm going to close with verse 9. If you have your Bibles, take a look at verse 9. Here's what it says. Queen Vashti, that is Xerxes' wife, also gave a banquet. Remember, banquets are important for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Again, as I already said, banquets, whenever the author in Esther talks about a banquet, he's trying to show us something significant. And so here we see the third banquet and still no trace of God. Uh, What's the author trying to do here? He's trying to do something very specific. He's trying to juxtapose uh, the nation of Persia or the, the dominion of Xerxes with Israel. So you have Xerxes on one hand and then you have the God of the Bible on the other. You have Xerxes palace and you have the temple in Jerusalem. And here we have three Persian banquets, three of them. And who do they center around? They, they center around the people. Who do they celebrate? Who do they eat unto? They eat unto themselves. It's all about them. But when God's people eat, if you thumb your pages through the entire Bible, whenever God's people eat, who do they eat unto? They always eat celebrating the redeeming work of God. Every meal, every festival, every celebration that is thrown in the Old Testament is one that is done in remembrance of God's saving work in their lives. It's done as an act of worship. In fact, the same thing is true for us even when we eat now. When we eat, uh, we do not eat food that was purchased with our money that we bought that is here to sustain us. What is being uh, put on display for us every single time our family sits down to eat is that we are sitting down recognizing that we are a people who have deep need and that God through his kindness, his grace, and his mercy provide amply, provided amply for us the food that we are about to eat. And so when we sit down to pray as a family at the dinner table and we hold hands, we we don't pray for the food. We pray and thank Jesus for his provision. The last couple of weeks, our family has had 
an unending train of meals that just keeps showing up at our house. And every single day for the last couple of weeks, we'd get to sit down as a family and say, look at how the Lord provided for us. Through our church family, by the way, thank you, church family. Look at how the Lord provided for us. And so what the author is trying to show us here is that there's, there's a vast difference between the empire and the people of God. What he's trying to show us is that in the empire, there is no God. It's hollow. It's, it's empty. There's no God in the banquet. In the first nine verses, there's no mention of God. God's not in the entire book. He's just not there. We're, we're never going to come across a scene in the book of Esther where there's a prophet that speaks or there's a priest who makes a sacrifice or where there's somebody who repents of sin or somebody who prays a prayer. There's, there's just nothing like that. It, it's, it's, it's strange. It's, it's a curiously stunning omission. Not one iota or trace of God. And what all of this is designed to do is to ask us one of the meta questions that the book of Esther is calling out, which is, where is God? In all this, where is God? Where, where is he? And how many of us right now, we can, we can appreciate that question. You're looking at your life, you're looking at the, the reality of the moment that we're in, and you're asking the question, Jesus, are you on the throne? Are you actually in control? Because it really doesn't feel like it. You, you find yourself asking, God, are you even there? God, do you even exist? God, are you paying any attention at all? God, are you on vacation? Are you like some absentee landlord? You've kind of forgotten about us. Uh, maybe you're a person who doesn't even, you know, this is all new. You, you don't really go to church. And, and situations like we find ourselves in right now in the world where people are dying, losing their jobs, economies are crashing. You say to yourself, this is actually proof. In my mind, this is proof that God doesn't exist. The book of Esther is saying you should be asking that question. How many of you in your darkest moments, be honest, but in your darkest moments, you felt that? Maybe even you've prayed it. Listen, this is hard. The season that we are in right now as a, as a culture in our, in our world, it's, it's a hard season. And I think now more than ever, we, we need to be honest it's okay to be honest about how you feel. In fact, I, I would contend it's, it's necessary. I mean, for me personally, this is hard. It's super hard. I shared last week uh, that my father recently passed away four weeks to the day. We can't have a funeral. I don't know when we're going to be able to have a funeral. It's hard. Uh, my dad's wife, my stepmom, she's gone back to Ontario She's there with my, two of my brothers. Her family comes over. They drop a meal and they talk from six feet away in the driveway. She can't even hug her own family to help her grieve. It's hard. My family was supposed to go away this summer, eight weeks, California. We were supposed to be part of that trip. We were going to go to Disneyland. My dad was going to come and spend a week with us down in California. It's hard. 
It's hard. It's okay to admit that it's hard. It's okay to ask the question, God, where are you? Are you even there? And friends, the book of Esther is trying to show us that God is indeed there. He's there. Uh, One author, when trying to describe for us how to best understand the absence of God's presence in the book of Esther, he uses the analogy of a silhouette. Well, when you paint a portrait, uh, the person that you're painting or the image that you're painting is is the dominant feature right it's it's the center and it it takes up uh you know most of the painting it's easy to see it's pronounced it's right there that's how God shows up in most of the stories of the Bible you see his hand of miracle you see him working you see him moving Uh, but a silhouette it's different than that a silhouette paints a portrait through absence God in the book of Esther looks more like a silhouette. It looks like he isn't there, but like a silhouette, when you look at the absence, it actually reveals the presence of something that you missed at first glance. And so God is in the book of Esther. He's at work in the book of Esther. It's just not through his visible hand of miracle, but rather through his invisible hand of providence, as we'll see as we go through this book. And friends, there's a lesson here for us. And here's where I will leave you. Don't confuse your inability to see the invisible hand of God with his absence. He's there with you even when he seems absent. As John Piper said, God is always doing 10,000 things every second. But you may only be aware of three. Is this hard? Yeah. Is this scary? Yeah. Yeah. Will this crush us? No. No. Why? Because we belong to Jesus and he is with us and he promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, pray for us as a church and anyone who's listening in right now as we go through the the hardship of this moment that we find ourselves in. This moment where it it feels like you're not there. It feels like, if we're honest, you're not working. It feels like you're sleeping at the wheel. Lord, would you show us the 10,000 things you're doing? Uh, Would you allow us to be attentive to your spirit? Uh, Would you allow us to sense your providential hand in our lives that that we would know that even, even though things might not be going exactly the way we want them to go, there is this reality that God, you indeed are still seated on the throne. You are high and exalted. You are ruling and reigning. You have not forgotten us and you will not leave us. Lord, in this moment, would you comfort us? Would you meet with us? And as we respond to you in worship, Lord, would you fill our hearts with the overwhelming sense of your love for us? We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen, amen.